Good morning. Much to the uh, amusement of my wife and my family, I have this thing I like to say when the sinful nature, which, which we all have, rears its ugly head and small children. So when a child deliberately disobeys what they're told to do, when they lie about something they've done, when they take the anger that they have toward their parents and they direct it towards one of their siblings, when they break things out of anger, when they take things out of anger or jealousy, when they can't win at the game, so they wreck the game so nobody can win at the game, when they get angry at their parents and they yell and they scream and they cry and they throw tantrums and they throw themselves on the floor and then they just proclaim that it's just not fair, when everybody in the room is fully aware of it, I like to state the obvious, well, they're just a little bucket of sin today, aren't they? <laughs> the truth is, we're all that way as children. Truth is, in many ways, we still are. Children just don't have the skills or the sophistication, nor do they have the desire to hide it as well as adults do. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I saw a video the other day that reminded me of a verse that I memorized years ago. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what does it look like when sheep keep falling into sin? So you got to get out of sin first, right? So sometimes we need a little help. But I, there it is. I give you the human condition. <laughs> so some things you got to see twice. Let's do that again. So just each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord, thank God, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. So yeah, you know, children are little buckets of sin. Adults are buckets of sin. And Cain, well, as you just heard, he's a pretty good-sized bucket of sin himself. In fact, the progression of Cain is remarkably similar to a two-year-old's temper tantrum, as we're going to see when we look at the text this morning. So in the previous chapter, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve and the serpent have all been banished from the garden due to the fall. Yet, Adam and Eve are called upon by God to be fruitful, to increase on the earth, and to fill it and subdue the earth, and, provide, and work the ground to provide food. The difference, however, as we saw, is it's going to be a whole lot more difficult because of their disobedience to God and their refusal to trust God in the face of their temptation. So the consequences now mean that living life and taking part in God's plan is going to be a lot more difficult. Genesis 4 records the birth of their two sons first two sons, Cain and Abel. Okay, let's dive right into our text today. Again, it says, verse 1 states that Eve, whose name means life, brings forth life. She bears a son. And Eve states, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And she's acknowledging that God has given her, literally, a man-child, what it means. Now, there's some scholarly debate, but some speculate that Eve could have believed that God was already at work to fulfill the proto-gospel, which she heard God proclaim to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Now, we looked at that last week, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So could it be that Eve thought that the man-child that God gave her was that fulfillment? Did she think that Cain was going to be her redeemer? Now, 
If she did, she was right to think that it would, the redemption was going to come from her offspring, but she was certainly wrong about Cain. The pain of bringing a child into the world, as Pastor Stacy referenced last week, was going to be soon very evident to her with Cain. She has a second son. And verse 2 states that her two sons grew up to be a farmer, Cain, and a shepherd, Abel. And they begin to fulfill the commandment to subdue the earth and rule over the animals. So verses 3 and 4 describe an event where Cain and Abel worship God. Now even though the formal, formal Levitical sacrificial system has not been established yet, Moses will give that later to Israel. Cain and Abel have a desire and they have some kind of understanding that causes them to offer up a sacrificial offering to the Lord. In verse 3 states, Cain brought some of the fruits from the soil. And verse 4 states, Abel also brought an offering, the fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked favorably on Abel's offering. But verse 5 states, on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So, so what happened here? What's the difference between Abel's offering versus Cain's? Now, scholars have a lot of varying opinions on this. However, I would, I would agree with scholars that contend that there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with Cain offering fruit from the earth or grain as opposed to an animal sacrifice. You know, later we see in Israel's history that grain offerings and harvest offerings are legitimate expressions of worship that God accepts and even commands. So, why does God reject Cain and his offering? New Testament authors inform us in Hebrews 11.4 that God regarded Abel because Abel had faith. And Jude and 1 John 3.11 and 12 indicate that Cain did not. Verse 4 records that Abel's, uh, he offers the firstlings of his flock, or the fat portions. Um, that word that we translate here that translates as fat portions means the best, the choicest parts, the best meat, the abundance. Abel gave what cost him the most, the firstborn. On the other hand, the text just says Cain only offered fruit from the ground. It doesn't give any indication that it was a first fruit. So it is possible that God's rejection could be tied to Abel bringing the best parts of his flock, while Cain was maybe just doing his duty, and he wasn't so particular about what he was bringing. Tremper Longman indicates that God's disappointment with Cain was because the quality of his sacrifice revealed the insincerity of his worship. You know, one of the key themes throughout Scripture is God seeks worship that is perfect and costly. He doesn't want our second best. And I also believe God sees into the heart of those who worship him, and, and I propose that what God saw in Cain's heart was unacceptable to him. Notice that verse 4 states, God did not look with favor on Cain, and his offering. And it brings us to an interesting question. So what if we had the same real-time feedback that God gave Cain in regard to the gifts that he, we bring God in worship? Whether it's our corporate worship here on Sunday or the individual worship that we have with God throughout the week, how would we feel about that kind of feedback? Now, on one hand, the argument can be made that we do have this feedback. The Spirit of God lives within us. But are we listening to it? Are we bringing God our best when we come into corporate worship? Whether that's our attitudes, what's in our heart, or really the intentionality and the readiness 
that we bring when we come into this place to worship God, or even the stewardships of the gifts that we bring God in worship, our tithes and offerings, are they more like Cain's or are they more like Abel's? Now in the text, God's method of communicating his refusal of Cain in the gift, it's not given to us, but nonetheless, Cain is aware, and verse 5 states, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. All right, so what's a downcast face? I think we have a pretty good idea what this is. We've probably seen this reaction in our own lives and in the lives of others as well. So I played basketball when I was in high school, and one of my basketball coaches when I played in high school had a particular intensity uh, of correcting me and coaching me and others, and I and others always didn't really react well to his style, and as as I reflect on it, you know, he always had my best interest in the team's best in interest in mind, but I didn't always really react well to his approach. And I remember on a couple occasions, he would be in the middle of correcting me, and he would just stop talking because my body language made him pause. And he would say something like, Kurt, get your head up and look at me. Don't mope. Don't be down on yourself. This isn't personal. This is to make you and this is to make this team better. And I can look back and see now what it, what it was. My face was downcast. I didn't like to be corrected, or more accurately, I didn't like to be corrected by him. When your face is downcast, in the wake of a rebuke or correction, it's really an indication that you're more concerned with the fact that you're being corrected or rebuked than you are with the value that lies in that correction. So I coached uh, travel soccer a few years ago. I had a girl on a U14 team, this would be about 8th graders, and she was a really good athlete, but she had not played a lot of travel soccer, so she was behind in her ball skills, and she was really behind in her understanding of the tactics that were necessary to play at that level. Now, that in itself really wasn't uncommon for many of the kids that transitioned from recreational to travel soccer. She wasn't the only one, but she did not like criticism or direction for that matter, and several times when I or other coaches would, would try to point something out to her, I mean, her face would just fall. I mean, and we would lose her. Sometimes we'd lose her for the rest of practice. And from a coaching standpoint, it was very frustrating. We just wanted her to, to do well, but her pride and her anger were what was holding her back. Now in our text, notice in verse 6 and verse 7, God's response to Cain's anger and his downcast disposition. The Lord asked Cain two, two questions in verse 6, and he asked a third question in verse 7. The first question is, why are you angry? That Hebrew word for angry, in this case, means to burn with anger. I think Cain is fuming on the inside. And the second question, again, is why is your face downcast? I like the way that ESV translates this. Why is your face fallen? This downcast face, which is the external manifestation of what the inner feelings that are going on, it reveals more the idea of dejection. You know, I get this picture of Cain moping around in self-pity and discouragement. Now back to my soccer illustration, I remember having to put that particular girl on the bench a couple of times, not because of her performance, but because of her despondent attitude. Likewise, in the text, the first two questions demonstrate that even though God was not pleased with Cain's offering, he was more displeased with Cain's response. The omniscient God sees Cain's despondent heart. 
But more importantly, there's, there's grace for Cain here. God asks a third question, which is a rhetorical question. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So some would argue that this implies that Cain inherently knew what to do, the quality of worship and the quality of offering to bring in the first place, and he chose not to bring it. That he knew his heart wasn't right, but he chose not to address it. And we, we can't be 100% sure of that. But I think we can safely conclude now that he has the chance to do what is right now. And God's question clearly implies that Cain's anger and his dejection are not justified. And we don't really know what the specifics of doing well involved, but Cain did. And I tend to land on the side that Cain knew better in the first place. But to know the truth of God's precepts is not enough. We need to live into it. Cain, once again, has a choice to do what is right. The way to get over his depression was to change his performance. He would feel better if he did better. And God's gracious direction for Cain is if he does right, if he does the right thing, he will be accepted, and his dignity would be restored. But notice, God doesn't even give Cain a chance to answer that question, but he rather he continues with an imperative warning in verse 7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's desire to you to, is to have you, but you must master it. And that Hebrew word for crouching means to stretch oneself out and lie flat. It gives you this image of a predatory animal waiting, waiting to pounce on his helpless prey. This is as if God is saying, to, saying, Cain, Cain, think about what you're about to do. The next move that you make is very important. That thing out there, it's waiting for you, and it wants you. I mean, it wants you bad. But you're the one with the power here, Cain. You're the one that has the choice. It wants you, but you need to know that it can't have you unless you let it. Well, we know the rest of the story. Cain does not master it, and he fails. He lets the sin crouching at his door have him for lunch. And he invites Abel out into the field one day, and he attacks him, and he kills him. And in his anger, Cain took the life of another human being, and the victim was his own brother. And the fact that it took place out in a field, out of the range of help, is proof that it was premeditated. And we, and we read this, and we cringe at this horrible act. I mean, we lament over school shootings, and we think, how can somebody do something like that? But when we think about Jesus redefining murder in the Sermon of the Mount, if we're honest, we'd have to confess that we have our own list of people that we have assassinated in our, in our mind, with our attitude, with our words even. I mean, there's blood in the field that cries out in the fields of social media every day. And we learn from the murder of Abel that the crouching sin of anger and jealousy can be tremendously destructive. It's certainly not Abel's fault that Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted. It wasn't pleasing to God. But when God accepts Abel's offering and he rejects Cain, Cain redirects his anger that he has toward God and his jealousy and his hatred toward his brother. And history confirms that hatred often leads to murder. This is what Jesus was pointing at in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when he says, hating your brother or sister is really the same thing as murder. So in verse 9, just as with Adam and Eve, 
God comes asking questions. And he's looking for both the victim and the wrongdoer. And he asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? Just as he did with Adam and Eve. I think God is offering Cain the opportunity to confess, to, uh, to admit what he's done. I think, I think Cain is being given another chance here to restore his broken relationship with God. But Cain, Cain will have no part of it. Unlike his parents, Cain is obstinate and he's arrogant toward God. I mean, Cain responds, basically saying, how am I supposed to know? Well, that's a lie. Am I my brother's keeper? Another falsehood that you just twist around and makes a question. And in verse 10, the Lord responds, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and you're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it's no longer going to yield crops for you. You're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Just as it was with Adam and Eve. There's a pattern here in the narrative of Cain's sin. I mean, first there's the temptation, then there's the sin, and then God comes questioning, and now there's the sentencing or the consequences. And the consequences are that Cain, the farmer, can no longer work the ground. I mean, he can try, but what I'm interpreting here is that God is saying, things are not going to grow for you. The ground soaked with Abel's blood will not allow it. So Cain can no longer farm. But he now must become a restless wanderer. This is a lifetime of punishment for him to remember his sin. But Cain, Cain and he's not done yet, man. He, he doesn't accept the punishment or consequences passively. Instead, he objects out of the, to this punishment out of fear for his life. Now think about what he's saying here to God. He's basically saying, this punishment is not fair because someone may do to me what I just did to Abel. And that's not fair. I can't bear that. But God, in his grace, assures Cain that he will be marked so that no one will kill him. Now, we don't know exactly what that mark looks like or means. But more importantly, this is a tremendous show of God's grace and his sovereignty in protecting the murderer from being murdered himself. Commentator Terence Fredheim states that God is essentially stating to Cain, don't worry, Cain. I will be Abel's brother's keeper. Mm. Just as there was grace for his parents when they fell, there's grace for Cain. So verse 16 states, Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So the question that we've been asking, and we're going to continue to ask as we work through these 11 chapters in Genesis, is what does this passage teach us about the life of and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it, how does it lead us to Jesus? And the New Testament offers really a surprising amount of commentary on the narrative of Cain and Abel. And two ways are clearly delineated in New Testament texts. The way of Cain, and even though it's not specifically named this in Scripture, I suggest a way of Abel. Now regarding the way of Cain. Again, Jude 11 speaks of those who are praying on the New Testament church. It says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And John writes in 1 John 3, 12, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brothers. And why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Are we like Cain? Yeah, we are. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's a pattern here with Cain, if you see it. The pattern is Cain brings God less than his best, and then he gets angry at God's rebuke. And he refuses to make the right choice, although God says it will go well for him if he just does it. Instead, he's angry at God, and there isn't anything he can do to God, so he redirects that anger toward his brother, Abel. He commits the sin of murder, followed by the sin of lying. Then, in the wake of those consequences, he pivots toward a mode of self-preservation. And what about us? I mean, we often follow parts that are all of the same pattern. I, I used the illustration of children at the beginning, but and it's easy to see this pattern in the actions of a child, yet we adults can fall into the same pattern. It's often very easy for us to have a sullen, downcast reaction to the rebukes that we receive either verbally or simply the natural consequences of our sin. We can have a failure to recognize that even more sin is crouching at our door, waiting to have us. We can fail to rule over it, when the truth is we have everything we need to rule over it. But instead, we, like Cain, often channel our anger toward others, our brothers and sisters, not being their keeper, not loving them as we love ourselves, but redirecting the anger that we have toward God and perhaps even the anger that we have with ourselves at someone else. And then we lie about it. Now, lying to God in the lack of confession or acknowledgement of our sin, but also lying to ourselves, self-deception when we do that. And then finally, in the wake of the natural consequences of our action, we, like Cain, can pivot towards self-preservation. We all go the way of Cain. Don't think because no, anyone, no one dies at our hands that we don't do it. But that's some good news this morning. There's also a pattern with Abel. And we should examine that as well, and we're going to do that as this morning looking at even more New Testament commentary on our passage. Now, the writer of Hebrew tells us in uh, chapter 11, verse 4, that by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. Well, how does the way of Abel still speak today? Well, the way of Abel is a way of faith. Faith to choose what is right and faith to obey. One, one commentator put it this way. It took faith for Abel to offer his firstborn, the best of his flock. If Abel's trying to establish a herd, perhaps the temptation is to hold back the best for breeding purposes, maybe to hold it back to invest in his future. But there's a trust here in God's provision that if he offered his best, God would provide for him. The way of Abel is a way of faith. The New Testament also says that Abel's righteous blood is a precursor to Jesus' righteous blood. Again, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, 24, that he states that when we come to faith in Christ, we come to a joyful mountain through where the righteous are made perfect, through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here's a, 
a scriptural comparison of Abel to Jesus. And Abel shed blood to Jesus shed blood. And we can lay out a pattern here. Abel was innocent. He brought his best to God. Unfortunately, his blood was shed anyway at the hands of his brother who sinned against him and also sinned against God. Likewise, Jesus was innocent. He was perfect. He was without sin. Jesus voluntarily shed his blood for us. He voluntarily shed his blood for the ones who sinned against him and continue to sin against him today. Again, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God said, Abel's blood cried out to him from the ground. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 35, that Abel's shed blood and the shed blood of the prophets murdered throughout the Old Testament is righteous. He calls it righteous. I think the blood of those murdered throughout history cries out to God. I think the blood of children and adults that have been once again murdered in school shootings cries out to God. Regarding Matthew 23 and Hebrews 12, John Goldengay states, specifically, Abel's blood cries out to God. Abel's blood appeals for a remedy. Jesus' blood appeals for forgiveness. Yet Jesus reckons that the appeal of Abel's blood cannot simply be ignored. And he's warning the spiritual leaders of his day that something will have to be done about all the blood that's been shed by the bodies of people who did not deserve it. Starting with Abel's, and they need to be wary of having to pay a price for it. Either you let Jesus' blood appeal for you, or you pay for the blood you shed, whether it's directly or indirectly. Either you let Jesus' blood appeal for you, or you pay for the blood you shed, directly or indirectly. Golden Gate continues. Not surprisingly, Jesus' reaction compares to God. The shedding of blood demands recognition and remedy. Jesus offers the remedy in place of the people who deserve it. He, therefore, embodies the stance God takes throughout the Old Testament. I would add to that, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own Lord toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commentator Bob Deffenbaugh ties both these passages up quite nicely. He says, while God valued the blood of Abel that was shed for his faith, it's not to be compared with the better blood that was shed by Jesus Christ. Abel's blood was a testimony to his faith. Christ's blood is the cleansing agent by which people are purged of their sin and delivered from the penalty of their sin, eternal separation from God. I think one of the things this text reminds us of is that sin is no light matter. Someone had to pay for that sin, and that person was Jesus. Romans 6.23 states, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that is who Jesus is. I mean, he is the ultimate way of Abel. So despite what Eve may or may not have thought, neither Cain nor any of his offspring were to redeem mankind. Neither was Abel, whose blood that was shed was a foreshadowing of the blood that would be shed for us all. And this is a fitting text 
for us to come to the table today. You should uh, have your communion kits from when you came in. If not, feel free to, if you didn't get one of these, uh, feel free to, I, I've got a basket right in front of the sound booth. You can get up while I'm talking and go back and grab one. So do me a favor. Um, as I share, just hold this in your hand. Hold this in your hand. The body, the blood of our Lord Jesus is what this represents. You know, these past three weeks we've walked through the fall. The original sin that set in motion a spiral of sin that here just one chapter later has now progressed to anger, to jealousy, to murder. And as we continue through these first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's going to get worse each week. So what we're doing here is we're unpacking the problem, right? The illness. But what we hold in our hand represents the remedy. The body and the blood of Jesus are precious. I mean, this is a gift to you. This is the best gift you've ever been given. The precious gift. Hold it like it's the best gift you've ever been given. You know, the second person of the Trinity, we saw it was part of the creation order. He was active in making it all. He was there in the garden where, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and were banished from the garden. He was there when the serpent was told what the plan would be through the proto-gospel. He watched the spiral that followed. He watched and he waited. And at just the right time, scripture says, he became one of us. He lived a perfect life. And in the ultimate way of Abel, he gave his own blood. His own blood to redeem those who murdered him. That is Jesus. That is who Jesus is. And part of what we do before we come to communion is we examine ourselves and we confess. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and they drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So in light of this, this text today, very fitting text, I want to invite us now into a time of silence. Um, so as we go, to si go into this time of silence before we come to the table, I just invite you to consider a few things. What is the sin that might be crouching outside your door? Where have you not mastered it? In what ways might God be saying to you, you know what to do? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So let's consider these things as we go into a time of silence together. Lord, as we come to your table, would you search us? Know us? See if there be any wicked way within us. God, show us where we have gone the way of Cain. God, show us where we have not mastered the sin crouching outside our door. God, show us where it is that we can do the right thing. Come to you now.